My name is Keith Brower. I'm an alcoholic, and uh, grateful that he called me. I've, I've never said no to anything ever asked of me to do in the, in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, uh, I wish I could tell you that it was easy me, for me to get in here. <laughs> it was very difficult. In fact, I'll tell you a little bit about my family history. I was born in 1938, and World War II started in 41, so it gives you an idea how old I am. I'll be, I turned 84 last week, and I, I'm from a farm town in Indiana, uh, Columbus, Indiana's little farm town. My mother was one of 10 children, Irish, we were all uh, Scotch-Irish, and my father was uh, also, he, he had a quarter of German in him. But he was Scotch-Irish, too. In World War II, uh, this is kind of significant to me anyway, uh, Columbus, Indiana is where I was raised. I was Clussy Cummins' paper boy. You ever heard of Cummins Engine Company? It was founded and, and headquartered still to this day in, in Columbus, Indiana, a little farm town in Indiana. So uh, that's where I was raised. And in World War II... Uh, each county had a had a quota quota for the army and uh, for the and navy, so they had a draft. They drafted each county had a number of people they had to provide. Well, Cummins made uh, diesel engines for army trucks, so everybody that worked there was exempt from the draft. So my dad was an insurance agent, and he was thirty four years old with four kids and got drafted. So. <laughs> It's hard to believe that happens. But that happened back when I was a kid. So in World War II, I was raised in the slums of D.C. We uh, packed up. There were four of us kids at that time. I'm one of six children. And we lived in the slums of D.C. until the war ended in 45. And uh, I, uh, the thing about all this was we went back to Indiana after the war and... Uh, we were poor, but no one ever told us. We didn't know it. So we worked. I uh, picked tomatoes. I never wore shoes in the summer. And, and uh, none of us did. And uh, so I picked tomatoes. And on Saturday, my, my grandfather had a dirt farm, and he didn't even have tractors. He had workhorses, Belgian workhorses. So he would hook Frank and Barney was their names. And he would hook, I had all these cousins, and I had, because mother was one of ten, and they had children so they could have farm workers. So everybody had, a, I had, I got cousins out the wazoo, some I don't even know yet. But I knew a lot of them then, but anyway, that's the way I, where the background I came from. So in World War II, he would hook those, uh, Frank, up, one of those horses up and all my cousins would pile on this wagon, and we'd go in about four miles to the general store, and we would get a, a either a Pepsi Cola or something or a Hershey bar. It was a big deal. And but we were poor then, but no one ever knew it. But we were all happy. So uh, if you're new here and you haven't got any money, that doesn't make you happy anyway. So I I figured that out a long time ago. So anyway, things got better for us. Uh, my dad was an alcoholic, and many of the Irish in our family were alcoholics, aunts and uncles. Uh, 
And, uh, but they didn't call it that. If you had any money left, they'd call you, uh, they didn't call you an alcoholic. They'd call you, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the word now. Uh, they didn't call you an alcoholic. You were eccentric. Uncle Tom was eccentric. He wasn't an alcoholic. <laughs> but he, Uncle Tom was drunk all the time. So uh, that's what they called him when I grew up. They didn't call people alcoholics. So I grew up in this small town, and I uh, had uh, two older brothers and three younger sisters. None of the sisters got the disease. All of the boys did. And I, uh, my father never quit drinking to the very end, and he lived to 84. Now, my uh, grandmother had those 10 children. She had the last one when she was 49. He died last year at 99. So uh, that's how uh, we had good genetics in it, going for us. But anyway, uh, so a lot of them were alcoholic, and uh, but a lot of them are still halfway successful. They had the worth ethic in us, and that was instilled in all of us as as kids. So I uh, I knew what work was all about. So I uh, I grew up there in the, in a great little town. And I did extremely well until I started drinking my senior year in high school. I, uh, I excelled in school. And uh, it, when I, my father gave me my first drink, and he said, he gave me uh, rules to live by. He says, a real man can hold his liquor. And he could, I thought that was a good thing. And so uh, I, I, I remember that. And then he said, don't trust people who don't drink. I remember that. And then, <laughs> then he said, when you're going to get in a barn fight, always get the first hit in, licking before they're look, when they're not looking. I remembered that. And so I got lots of barroom fights, and I usually came out okay, sometimes not. But uh, I would, uh, that's the way I, that's the wisdom I got from my, about life and uh, so it was kind of an interesting uh, way to grow up uh, I uh, I remember I, I saved enough I was a worker and I was a janitor in high school and I saved up all my money to go to college and I went to college and I came home and my dad had had an affair with some uh, somebody and my parents had moved and they never told me so I came home and the house was empty and <laughs> that's that's the kind of communications my father had. He had got caught by some guys. He was a womanizer and an alcoholic, and, and that's what he, that goes together. So anyway, that was uh, one of the things I remember when I came home from college. I went to the army in 1956, and. Uh, I went to college one year. I made good grades, but I did a lot of drinking. And I, I uh, pledged a fraternity that drank the most. And uh, I did a lot of heavy drinking and blackout drinking. I was a blackout drinker from day one. But I also could hold a lot. And that was expensive. <laughs> but I could hold a lot of booze. And I thought that was a good thing. And I would uh, drive social drinkers home. They'd go out and get drunk, and I'd... Drank four times what they drank, driving them home. 
thinking that was a good thing. And uh, I've been in jail for drink, uh, for uh, in my 20s for uh, drinking, and not for DUI, though. I got a public intoxication charge. And uh, that's the way it went for me. And uh, it, I think the thing that really kind of turned me around at the maybe wanting to change was when I uh, I got married and divorced and I was with uh, in Alabama. I lived in Alabama in the Army two years and for a company I worked for called Del Monte Foods. And I worked, I was a salesman for them for five years and I married a gal from Alabama, but it was annulled. And uh, I, I didn't, we never did live together, but I, I got drunk and got married drunk. And uh, so anyway, I went back to Indiana in 65, and I went to a high school reunion. I graduated from high school in 1955, and I went back to this reunion, and I noticed something. My friends that I grew up with had college degrees, and they had homes and cars and families, children, little children. And they were, they were really getting ahead in life. And uh, I was, uh, at that time, I was about 20, 28 years old. And I thought, what the hell do they have everything and I got nothing? What's wrong? All I had was a car with, with 36 months payments to do. <laughs> I had no assets. And I thought, what the hell have they got everything and I got nothing? And they're all real happy, and I'm miserable. What, what is this? What's, what's wrong? I said, I need to get married. <laughs> so I, that's what I thought my problem was. I, was. I needed to get married. So I went to Cincinnati and opened it, and I couldn't get a job. So I, uh, I sold insurance like my dad did. And you can, uh, if you can't get a job, the insurance companies will always hire you because they they don't pay you unless you make a sale. You get a commission, so they haven't got anything to lose. And uh, <laughs> by hiring you, if you don't make a sale, it doesn't cost them anything. So I went to Cincinnati and on my own dollar, and I opened an insurance agency, and I managed to make enough money to pay the rent. And uh, pay, make my car payment, and I got into a little niche of insurance, and I met a lot of uh, alcoholic agents, and I drank with them in different bars in Cincinnati. And one of them introduced me to my wife, and she drank like I did. So it was perfect. So I, I made enough sales and in insurance to get married, and I, I kind of controlled my drinking a little at the beginning. And so <clears throat> that was in 1969, and I, I we we made it for about three years, and uh, I was just getting further. And further. I met all these bankers in uh, bars, and they would loan me money. I was a good bullshitter, and they I could get them to loan me money. I was a good salesman, so I would end up, and I would get a loan from a bank, and then when that was due, I'd go to a different bank and leave that bank off and get a bigger loan. And I ended up at the end in 1973 where I owed every major bank in Cincinnati, the max, 
And they didn't know it. They didn't have a computer system like they got now, 50 years ago. So it was, uh, you could pull this off. So anyway, here I am. I owed all the banks. My wife is pregnant. I got a car payment. I got a lease car. I don't, couldn't even buy a car. I got nothing. And I'm, I'm about ready to commit suicide. I mean, I'm, I'm really suicidal. And I had all these, uh, well, they, back then, they would call you manic depressant. And so I was like lower and low and drink a little bit and get higher and high. I mean, I was up and down emotionally. And they call it manic depressant. They changed it later to bipolar. And so, uh, when I came to AA, I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I thought I was manic, depressant, or bipolar. And my sponsor said, well, you can be that, and they'll give you drugs. They'll give you Valium and stuff to treat that. Or you can be an alcoholic, and it'll go away. I said, what? And he said, try it. So anyway, I got so bad that I was in a lawsuit, and I, my lawyer called AA and handed me the phone. I didn't even call. And he said, I think you're an alcoholic. He diagnosed me and handed me the phone, and a guy answered the phone, and he asked where I was. And I told him I was at the, uh, I shared an office, an insurance office with three other people. All By the way, they were all dead in three years from alcoholism. All the people I had an office with were chronic alcoholics. So anyway, he said, well, there's a meeting across the street at Mills Cafeteria in Cincinnati. That's where I got sober. And it meets every day for lunch. And he said, well, I'll call down there and tell them you're, if you will go to the meeting to go over there. And they'll, uh, they'll talk to you. Maybe you're not an alcoholic. So I, I said, well, if I go over there in Mills Cafeteria and walk in, how are they going to know who I am? He says, they'll know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> they'll be able to pick you out. At that time, I weighed about 240. I sweat all the time, but I always wore a good suit and kind of smeared. I, I looked, tried to look good, wore expensive shoes and, and expensive clothes, and, and I tried to pull it off. It was, I was really concerned on how I looked, so I tried to look good. But it was hard to look good if you weigh 240 and you're sweating all the time. All I did was sweat and, and drink and sweat. So I went in there. And uh, they, he knew exactly who I was. If I sat down, I met my sponsor. And this man changed my life. And here I was. I didn't even ask for help. My, my lawyer is the one who thought I should go. So I go in there, and he sits down. And i got some notes here. I'll, these are some of the things that I, got. I learned from him. And I brought these along so I could share them with you. And he said, Keith, I can't tell you if you're an alcoholic. But I wanted to ask you something. Because I, I didn't want to say I was an alcoholic. He says, the way you're living, which direction are you headed? Towards or away from Skid Row? <laughs> Ooh, that's a tough question to ask somebody. Which direction are you headed? Not if I was an alcoholic. And I was headed, I knew which direction I was headed. It was getting worse and worse. So he said, I, uh, I, 
how's your plan working for you now that, that you're doing now? I mean, you're trying to quit drinking. I had been trying to quit drinking. I said, it's not too good. And I, I was quitting drinking all the time. I would say, this is the last time I'm ever going to drink to my wife. And this time, I really mean it. And then I didn't feel that way the next day. So this went on a long time. And uh, he gave me, he said, I want you to go to these meetings every, uh, come here and have lunch with us and not drink and pray to your higher power if you have one. And I was raised a Methodist. We were Protestants. And so I, I didn't have anything against a higher power, but I wasn't asking for help when I was drinking. I was just asking to get out of the deals that I got into, the bad things. So uh, I, and then he said, I want you to go to these meetings every night and, and uh, do these steps. So I, I didn't immediately do all the steps, but I went to the meetings every lunch and night for 10 years. I did 10 years, and I really worked on it. I made a commitment to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I made a commitment not to drink. And that's the first commitment I ever made and kept since I started drinking. I, didn't make, I wasn't committed to any job, any wife, any, anything. I couldn't make commitments and keep them except to drink. And I did that. I, I, I committed to drink, and so when I quit... I was committed not to drink, and I didn't. And I haven't had a drink to this day since that first meeting. I never went out again. I never had a... And so I went to all the meetings, and in three months, I had lost 45 pounds. And uh, I was making insurance sales. And uh, things were getting a little better, but I went to... I had these... uh, I had financial problems. I went to my sponsor, and I said, look... I'm in trouble. I said, I owe every bank in town. And I can't pay anything. And he said, I said, the only thing I ever paid in my life on time was a bar tab. And he said, well, he said, I don't think you got a problem. He says, I think the people you owe a lot of money to got a problem. <laughs> <laughs> you got to figure this out. So, <laughs> you know, he was right. So he said, I want you to make a list of all them and go call on them. And, uh, I did. I made a list of everybody I owed money to. It took me five years to get out of debt, to get to zero. I was 40 years over 40 before I ever got to just to zero. Uh, so I, I know what it's like to, not to have money and have pressure, financial pressures. Physically, I had a suspected heart attack when I was 31, and I was overweight, and so I made a commitment to my health. And I, uh, Jim Fixer wrote a book about running. I started running, and I'm an alcoholic, and I do everything to more is better. So here I am. I never was an athlete in my life. I'm running five to ten miles, five miles one day and ten the next. Within six weeks, I qualified for the Boston Marathon. I ran a marathon in 30, three hours and 30 minutes. That is eight-minute miles. I, I can't even believe I did that to this day. And I, I'd run 10Ks, uh, six-mile days on the weekends, and I'd run those in 630s. I mean, I was like smoking, and I was in great shape. I wish I, I still can't believe I did that. But anyway, I got in great shape physically, and, and I started making insurance sales, and I started making money. And... Uh, 
he, he helped me with my money. For one thing, I never could manage money. And so my sponsor said, There's only, there, you'll never have anything unless you learn this little simple rule. Spend your money after you make it, not before. <laughs> and so I, I listened to him, and I didn't get into I From that day on, the only thing I usually owed on was like a car and a house. I never did anything else financially, and I listened to him. And he, he, he helped me with my life, not just not drinking. And I, God was right there with he. I asked God for help on all these little issues I had with life. He said that there's, a, there's a, here's, a, here, here's some of the things that I learned from him. He said the three B's will keep, will keep you drunk. I said, what's the three B's? He said, booze, broads, and bookmakers. <laughs> he says, avoid those. That'll, that'll make you drunk. All right, that's good. And then uh, he said, he always told, when I came in, I told my story. He, if you read my shirt, it says, he said, that's a heartbreaker. <laughs> he gave no sympathy to me ever. And I remember I was sober. When I, I would go to these meetings every night, and there'd be these uh, unusual people. You, you meet all kinds of people at meetings. Actually, one time I went to a meeting, and my wife and I took this old guy to this meeting, and he used to be in the candy business, he said. And I said, oh, oh he did, well, and, and he was crippled, and he'd been sober a few years, and he was like in his 60s. So my wife and I would, I would pick him up and take him to the meeting. I didn't even know what, well, he, what he did for a living or anything, where his background was. So anyway, we took him to the meeting. He finally died. But anyway, I'll give you an example of who you meet in meetings. So anyway, I'm watching the History Channel about two years ago, and they had the history of these companies, uh, candy companies. And they had the history of Mars Candy Bar on, and history of Hershey, and, and I watched them, and it said, uh, at the end of one of them, it said, when Mars died, he left his fortune to his estranged son who was over in Europe. And he came back and took over Mars Candy Bar Company. And he said, when, when Hershey died, he left his to his employees. He didn't have any children. A guy named, uh, uh, he left it to, uh, and the president of the guy was uh, Murray, uh, William Murray, was the president that took over Hershey when old, old man Hershey died. So he said the, the Mars guy made a call on Hershey. And he said, uh, I've got this idea for a candy, and I want—I can't get enough chocolate. Would you uh, help me get and develop this product? And he said, no, but my son would. And he said, who is that? What's your son's name? He said, Bruce. So anyway, the guy I was taking to dinner was Bruce Murray from M&M's. <laughs> Mars and Murray. And I met him at the AA meeting. I didn't even know what, we don't care what anybody does here. So here I am. That's the number one selling candy in the world. And he had lost everything the old Bruce had. And he was, he had some money left, but I met him at an AA meeting. I couldn't even believe it when I watched it. I told my wife about two years ago, that's who I took to dinner. <laughs> so anyway, it's kind of funny. So if you stick around here, things like that 
turn up and you think, I'm not having any meetings. So anyway, this I've had a great, uh, my wife and I had uh, the two children when I got sober, they were three and two. And she gave birth to John, my son, when, uh, when I was uh, 35. And he uh, he was born in 73. So anyway, we had those three kids, and I recovered financially. I recovered my health. But my marriage, she let... Well, I'll, before I say what happened, I'm going to tell you this. In one of the meetings I used to go to, there was an old guy that said, no one can make me mad enough or sad enough or glad enough to take a drink a day. That's all he ever said. And I would listen to him. And I thought, that's unusual. So anyway, when I was sober eight years, my wife ran off with a bartender. She had quit drinking for eight years on her own. She didn't go to AA. And I was mad, really mad. And... uh, I was furious, and I, I, was, I had uh, a pretty good temper, too. So uh, I went to my sponsor, and I said, I told him what happened and everything. He said, well, Keith, you don't have to be married to be sober. <laughs> How's that grab you? He didn't just say, what can I do? He said, well, you don't have to be married to be sober. So anyway, but he says, I want you since you can't control your temper, I want you to get out of town a while. Cool off, because I was about ready to kill this guy. So uh, I, that's what caused me to move west. I had cut, I had a brokerage company that I had started, this insurance brokerage for other agents. I was a wholesaler. So I had a, customers all over California. And so I went to California for a month because I couldn't control my anger over my wife running off the bartender. So I would, I remember calling back, and this is how God works. I called, I was gone a month, and I called back one day, and she was crying. I thought, oh, good, she wants me back. She said, AJ's got lung cancer. I said, oh. <laughs> so sorry. I'm not sure if that my higher power intervened or not, but I took care of him. And uh, <laughs> so that was one of the times I was really mad, and I didn't do, I didn't drink. I went about my business, did my work, still kept running, still kept working, still went to eight meetings every night. Nothing changed, and I didn't drink. But I, uh, I was mad. So anyway, that's one of the times I was mad. When I was saddest was when my third, that boy that I was born when I was thirty, when I was thirty-five. When he was thirty-five, he lived here in two thousand nine. He, uh, he was a great kid. I loved him, and he he was in business with me. He went to Marietta College. I'll tell you how it works how God works in my life. He went to Marietta College. And he met a girl there, and she got pregnant. So he didn't marry. They didn't get married. So I called her, and I said, you know, if you're not going to get married, I don't believe in abortion. And she, uh, she didn't get an abortion. She gave the baby up for adoption. 
And that, that was in uh, 2009. No, no, this was a long time. It's 25 years ago. I was so, at that time, I was sober about 20 years. So I made friends with that girl that he got pregnant. And uh, I made a relationship with her, and I helped her. She gave the baby up for adoption, and uh, the people that adopted her lived in uh, Connecticut. And her name, I all, and the adoption agency would send this girl, her name is Erin, Erin, a picture of her every year. But she didn't know her last name either. She just knew her name was Al- Alexandria. And uh, so every year she would send me a picture of Alexandria, she grew older. So uh, I had pictures in my office wall for 13 years. I, that she was my only grandchild for all those years, and I never knew her last name because she was adopted by somebody else. And so anyway, two years ago, she called me, and she says, I'm trying to uh, find out who my real parents are. And I, she didn't know John had killed himself. My son he couldn't get this deal. When he was 35, he committed suicide. He couldn't get this. He got on Percocet and, and uh, went to a pain doc, some, some doctor that was going to cure him with other than AA. He tried AA, and he couldn't get the spiritual part of this. So anyway, he killed himself. So I, I talked to her, and I, she didn't know John was dead. So, uh, but I got a picture of her every year. And she looks exactly like John. Exactly. She's a, like, he's reborn. So uh, last year, we went to Philadelphia, and I got to meet her. She was going to come out here this, uh, this month, but she couldn't get off work. But I have a great relationship with her now. She was my first granddaughter. And we're just like that. And it's like God put her back in my life. And if I hadn't have gone to AA, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have cared about who the girl was that had her, or anything. I wouldn't have, that wouldn't be my thinking. And so in A, I learned how to change. I was strictly a taker my whole life. It, I, everything was about me, and if, if whatever you did, if you didn't help me, I didn't help you. It was, that's just the way I lived. In AA, my sponsor taught me to help others. I sponsored lots of people. And I mean, lots. And uh, a lot of them have over 40 years of sobriety, too. The guys I worked, we worked with, we didn't go out again. We had a real fellowship. And we stayed sober together. And we helped each other. And I learned how to help others. Not just for them, but it made, it kept me from wanting to drink. And it made me uh, the person I always intended to be. I always had good intentions. I just never could follow through. So uh, anyway, that's that's what kind of happened. How's my time running? All right. I got, I got more to tell you about life than that. But but anyway, I went to all these meetings, and uh, that's when the times that was really sad was when John died. And uh, but something good did come out of it. And God, it, I I owe that all to my higher power. That he, that he put uh, Alex back in my life. Now, being other things that happen to you, the guy said mad, sad, or glad. Being glad sometimes is very dangerous for an alcoholic. I lived in California. I had my insurance agency going out there. 
And there was a little startup company, a little tech company started up across the street from my office. And I used to drink coffee with those guys and had lunch with them once in a while. So this, this was back in the 80s. And the guy said, you got to buy stock in our company. He said, we're going to go public, and it's we got a good thing going. I said, all right. So I had a little money. I, I invested $6,000 in this company, $6 a share, and I bought 1,000 shares of it, and I forgot about it. Well, that company grew. It, be, it was Qualcomm. <laughs> well, I ended up with 9,000 shares worth $280 a share. And I didn't do anything. And you know what? It was a dangerous time for a, for a guy to have that kind of money to drop in your lap. I didn't change cars. I didn't buy a new car. I didn't buy a new house. I didn't change wives. <laughs> I, I just went ahead like one day at a time. And uh, since that time, I never had financial security to lend. And my higher power, I guess, wanted me to have a little financial security. So uh, I've always made a living, but I never got ahead like that. So anyway, that's, that's how I, but I didn't drink over it. And I didn't change anything except be grateful. And uh, sometimes uh, when I was, when things were going great for me back in Cincinnati, I remember this, I would feel unworthy. I'd have this you know, when you're drinking, I didn't have any feelings. I remember when my grandmother died. I, I, I knew how I should feel because I saw other people sad. So I would act sad. But I really never had any feelings when I was drinking like that. Alcohol had taken my ability to feel away. And so when I came to A, then I learned how to get my feelings back. Bad and good feelings. Usually the bad feelings I had were good because they made me change. And I didn't, before, I never changed anything. So uh, if you're having bad feelings, that's a good thing. That's what my sponsor told me. He says, that, that means you need to change. And you need to take a look at yourself if you're having bad feelings. So anyway, that's what I kind of do in AA. I, I do the steps, and I try to, if I'm having a bad day, my sponsor always told me this. He said, you can't think your way out of feeling good or feeling bad. You can't think your way out of it. But you can act your way out of it. So he says, make a list of all the things, good things that you do that make you feel good. And make a list of them. Take a walk, run, bicycle, call a friend in AA, go to a meeting, go to church. Whatever makes you feel good, go do that. And the good feeling will follow. You can't think your way there, but you can do, act your way there. And that really helped me get out of a lot of depression. Uh, I remember when I talked about the depression before, and my sponsor said, you can be a regular nut and take pills, or you can go to AA and, and uh, learn how to get rid of the highs and lows. I went to my doctor I used to drink with, when I was sober, about six months, and, and I told he said, God, you've lost 25 pounds. You look great. He says, you taking that medication? I said, no, I don't take medication. Your blood pressure's normal. He said, here, take this when you feel uptight. And he gave me Valium. I just handed it back to him, and I never went back to that doctor. But it's so easy to look for an easier, softer way than to change.
And that's where I think, uh, that's why I go to AA. This is the easier, softer way. Not taking a pill. or uh, So anyway, that, that's one of the things that, that I learned in AA is I can't think my way out of feeling bad. And uh, the other thing I learned was this. There's nothing worse than giving unsolicited advice. I gotta get a drink of water here. And I learned that by looking back on my life. People gave me unsolicited advice my whole life, and I never listened. In AA, we don't do that. I don't give advice to anybody. I just tell them what happened to me. And if they identify with it, great. If they don't, that's too bad. But I learned, I was able to learn this way from other people's mistakes because they told me their mistakes and I could identify them. They told me how they changed and I've copied them. Everything I know came from the AA meetings. All the, everything that's, that's helped me. And here's what I believe. Drinking alcohol didn't make me what I am. What I am made me drink alcohol to excess. And so I have to change what I am. It's taken me a long time. I've been here, I've been coming to these meetings for 49 years. I'm still changing. And uh, there's another thing that I know is this. When I was in the Army, I was enlisted, and they would let us go on Saturday mornings. And they'd blow the whistle, and we'd all be standing out there. I was in Alabama, and he said, All right, guys, we're going to release you. And you've got it made if you don't fuck up. <laughs> and he was right. And that's the same thing here. You got it made if you don't take the first drink. Just don't take, don't screw up. And that's what this is all about. The first step. And I've seen a lot of people come in here and I watch them. And alcoholics are fun to watch because the ones that don't get that part of it, don't get the rest of it, ever. That's just the bottom line. And so I, I was able to not screw up. And uh, so anyway, uh, I was, I'm going through some of these things that that's kind of helped me through the years. I think I've covered, well, one thing is this. I'm 84 and uh, I've lived a great life. I've had ups and downs. I've been blessed uh, by tons of friends. And uh, I, I believe in the higher power. But heaven's going to be my home someday, but I'm not homesick. Thank you. <laughs>